Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, week 6 in our summer series, Questions Jesus Asked. And today, this question has found its way into popular culture. And that question is, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose their soul? We're going to see the story behind that question and understand what Jesus wants us to learn from it. So Luke chapter 9, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 18. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And then he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, they will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? The opening part of the passage we've read is reserved for several weeks from now when we talk about that early question that Jesus asked, which every one of us needs to answer. Jesus asks every human being the question. He asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? In a few weeks, we'll explore that in detail. But the reason why I included it in the story is because that question ends the first segment of Luke's gospel and opens up the rest of his gospel. You see, for the first eight chapters, that question has been central. The whole idea leading up to this is to look at the miracles and the teaching and the lineage of Jesus and how people have struggled with trying to figure out exactly who he is. The disciples themselves had asked that question in a boat when Jesus woke up to save them by calming the wind and waves. Who is this man? Jesus finally turns that question back on them. Who do you say that I am? And when Peter says, God's Messiah, this part of the gospel peaks. And now we enter a new part of the gospel. You see, the first part of Luke is about who Jesus was. The second part is about what he was here for why Jesus came. And the teaching that follows is very different from anything that's been taught up until this point. Now that it's clear that Jesus is God's promised Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures spoke of, Jesus wants to help them understand more deeply what the purpose of Messiah is. It's interesting that uh, again, in verse 21, right after Peter's confession, it says that Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. How many have seen that several times now in our study? When people experience a miracle or some encounter with Jesus that gives them a sense of the divine, he says, please don't tell anybody. 
And of course, they go and tell anyway. But why, why was Jesus so intent of not revealing who he was? Well, that's because in his day and in the region where he was ministering at this time, there was a huge interest in the coming of the Messiah. But it came with a very different set of ideas about who the Messiah was. And one of the things Jesus didn't want was to so incite the crowd that it would get in the way of what God intended, that they would take him and there would be an insurrection and an uprising against Rome and they would put him on the throne of David, which is what they were looking for. You see, that wasn't the Messiah that God was promising. Somehow they missed the idea of the suffering Savior. Jesus didn't want to get distracted from the purpose for which God had sent him. And so he says, please, we're not ready to go public with this. And that's why the next teaching is so important, because God's purpose for Messiah is very different than society's purpose for Messiah. And this is where we see the very first teaching of Jesus about his upcoming suffering. These are the very first words that predict his suffering and death and where the word cross is first mentioned. Let's read it again. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is the first time Jesus even mentions that. In another gospel, uh, Matthew records, uh, and I think Mark also records, that when, when they heard this, Peter, who was the first one to say, you're the Christ, takes Jesus aside as though he's some older guy trying to give this young kid some advice and says to him, no, this, this isn't the plan. Don't say that. And, and Jesus actually has to rebuke Peter. Why? Because even the disciples did not understand why the Messiah was coming. And so this first declaration of his coming suffering is for those who are most intimate with him and who will have to walk with him along that path. At the end of this chapter, it says, from that time on, Jesus intentionally set his sight and direction for Jerusalem. Once it was clear that he was God's promised one, he could now move forward and fulfill the mission. And what we see in this story is the centrality of the cross, not only in Jesus' future, but in the future of his disciples. And that's what we're going to look at just for a few minutes. In this very first mentioning of the purpose of Jesus, we see the centrality of the cross. The first thing we see about it is that it's the primary mission of Jesus. He says the Son of Man must suffer. Focus on that word, must. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and on the third day, be raised to life. I want you to understand that clearly. The cross was no mistake. It was not God saying, well, I didn't really have this in mind, but I can work with it. The cross was why Jesus came. So if you're considering who Jesus is and, and, and you want to think of him as popular culture thinks of him, as just a good teacher who came and taught us how to live and, and then was rejected by people because of his message of love and was a martyr for love, if, if that's your story of Jesus, then that's not Jesus' story of Jesus. 
He understood the cross was his mission. The cross also becomes the primary message of the gospel. It's all here. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Savior. He has come to suffer and be killed and even on the third day be raised to life from the dead. Jesus even prophesies concerning his own resurrection. The whole essential message of the gospel is right in here. I want you to look with me in 1 Corinthians 15. Maybe keep your uh, thumb on Luke 9 because we're going to come back to it and look with me in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 1. Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. All of this introduction to what we're about to read, make it clear, Paul is saying this is the essential message of the Christian faith. This is the gospel, it's the message I'm about to share with you that is the basis by which you are saved, through which you have life and joy and you experience grace and mercy and find your purpose in life. And without it, even following Jesus, your faith is in vain. That's how essential the gospel is. Now he's gonna tell us what the gospel is. Verse three, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ, God's Messiah, Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Historical critics, I I like to think of them as hysterical critics, like to think that Paul somehow hijacked the teachings of Jesus. That Christianity as we practice it today was actually an invention of Paul, but is in no way representative of who Jesus was. Can can we see clearly how that is not the case? Do you understand how his biographers indicated that Jesus himself made the cross and the message of the cross the central theme of his life and because of that it is the essential message of the gospel that, that we are to preach. The cross is the primary mission of Jesus, it's the central message of Jesus, but also as we read on, we see that the cross becomes the ultimate model for discipleship. Back to Luke chapter nine, verse 23. Then Jesus said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? This is really important. Jesus not only makes it clear about the cost he was going to pay as the Christ of God, the Messiah of God, but now those people that have been following him as It's been a party, it's been incredible, it's been full of miracles. The last 
great miracle that precedes this is the feeding of the 5,000, which is probably more like the feeding of the 14,000 because the Gospels only talk about men who were in attendance. Five loaves, two fishes, miraculous feeding. I mean, just imagine that. And imagine the afterglow that they're experiencing of all of this season of popularity and ministry. That season shifts from this moment on also. Jesus' teaching changes. In John chapter 6, right after the feeding of the multitude, Jesus begins talking about what it would mean to truly follow him, not just to come for the food. We have good food here. We have great coffee here. You don't follow Jesus because you like our coffee. You can follow Jesus and like our coffee, but the two aren't really connected. You're coming for the food or you're going to really be my follower. And he begins speaking hard. And it says, actually, in John chapter 6, from that moment on, many of his disciples were no longer walking with him. He's calling them to count the cost to follow him. And many are not willing to take it. So he turns to those that he has invested his life in most deeply. And he says, are you going to leave? Understand the weight of this question at this moment. Are you going to leave too? And they said, no. Where will we go? (laughs) They said, they'd given up everything to follow him. And then they said, and we have come to know and to believe that you alone have the words of life. See, when you get that, when you get who Jesus is, you recognize there's no going back from that. And when you accept his invitation to followership, his words give you life. And and that's why the the, the strength of Jesus' message here about the model for discipleship being centered in the cross can come across as counterintuitive to that. But it's not. It is a message of grace. It is a message of hope. But it's an honest and truthful message about the path to that hope and that grace. And so we're going to look at it from that sense. As we, as we look at this way of the disciple. It starts with this phrase, whoever wants to be my disciple. Look at that phrase. Whoever wants to be my disciple must. Is Jesus making any exceptions here for any of us? No, but he's including all of us. The invitation is for anybody who comes, but he says, this is the path that you must walk. And then there's three statements. He says, this follower of mine must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, in reading it in English, we just look at it as three steps in followership. If I could use that phrase, discipleship is followership in a way that our lives are transformed by the one who we're following. But in the Greek, the first two statements are connected. They are both in the aorist tense. And it's an imperative tense that requires a commitment. And so the first two things that he he says in this statement of three are the commitment that we make that results in the third 
which is a present tense or present perfect, if I were to use an English equivalent, which means that if we are able to do these first two imperatives and make our commitment to that, then we will follow Jesus as a state of life. It's the result of the first two. Does that make sense to you? And it's a lifelong journey. I'm following now and I will continue to follow for the rest of my life. What is it that he's saying when he says first you need to deny yourself? Some people like to connect this teaching to Eastern mysticism and suggest that Jesus is basically espousing that you have to lose yourself to the great oneness. Later on, we're going to see it's exactly the opposite. Jesus is talking about your individuality as a follower. So he's not saying you need to lose yourself. The word is your authority over your life, the initiative, your free will. And so what he's really saying is that you need to resign your authority over your life. If Jesus is Christ's Messiah, if he is Lord, then he needs to be in charge. You're not following Jesus if you're not completely resigned to his authority. And the second statement is like it, take up your cross. Now, this is the very first time the cross is invoked by Jesus. And for the listener, it it was probably a surprising and startling analogy because the cross was a very ugly thing. They all knew what the cross was. They had watched hundreds of their countrymen crucified all along the streets. The cross was a, a means of excruciating and humiliating execution. I don't want to walk away from the implications of that. Jesus is saying, I'm going to suffer and die, but there's life on the other end of that for me. That's what he's said so far. And followership could cost you everything. But what we're going to see is at the end of that is also life for you. But this statement carries something bigger than physical threat because it becomes the analogy for the Christian life. The disciples, in retrospect, understood that Jesus wasn't just giving them a model that meant you need to be willing to die for me. He's saying in living, you need to die for me. And the writers of the New Testament understood that. Let me, let me give you an example. Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ now lives in me, and the life I live in this body, which means I'm living. I've been crucified with Christ, but I'm living. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, they understood that this was bigger than just the threat of death. This was a a model for life. Another place where Paul uses this analogy is Romans 12.1, where he says, I beseech you, I beg you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, which is the cross, in view of Christ's sacrifice for us and the mercy we've received as a result, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourselves as, what's the phrase? Living sacrifices. Up until this moment, we would call that an oxymoron. <laughs> Living Sacrifice, government efficiency. (laughs) Jumbo shrimp. 
living sacrifice. What is that? That's the call of discipleship. You see, and so not only do I resign my authority over my life, we need to resign the agenda for our life. The life I live in this body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Christ lives in me. It's his agenda, it's his plans that matter. And if I'm able to do that, then the third thing, and follow me, means I reorient, I realign my future around following Jesus for the long run. This is what Jesus lays out as the way of the disciple. And he says, whoever will come after me must do these things. And so this is a dividing line for us. You see, some of us in this room may be true disciples. I I hope all of you are, unless you're exploring who Jesus is, and my hope would be that you'd come to be a follower of Jesus. But I think there's a lot of people in churches today who are not true disciples based on that definition. What they amount to is being fans of Jesus. Think about that. Are you a disciple or are you a fan of Jesus? I'm a fan of the Red Sox. I'm not a Red Sox. Can you, is, is there a singular for Red, Red Sox? Red Sox? I'm a fan of the Red Sox. I'm a fan of the Patriots even more. I'm not a Patriot uh, in that sense. I'm not a football player. There's a lot of people who are fans of Jesus who think they're followers of Jesus. They like the message, they like the idea, they like the experience of the people of God, they like the love, but they are not surrendering their life to him in order that his life might be lived through them. And that's really important. And so in order to bring this home to these followers that he's investing in, in whose hands he's putting the whole future of his mission He says, this results in two very clear choices, two paths for you. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So the first path is around this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Now again, are are we talking about just physical life here? Is Jesus saying people who are martyrs will get their great reward in heaven? Well, it depends on what the word life means here. There are multiple Greek words for the word life. One word is zoe. Zoe is the whole being, both body and spirit, both now and the future. It's it's that life that Jesus speaks of in John 3.16 when he says, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting zoe, everlasting life. When the Bible speaks of eternal life or the full essence of who we are both now and as eternal beings, it uses the phrase zoe. Is, is that the word that's being used here? No. A second word is bios. We get a lot of words from the word bios. For instance, the English word biography is about somebody's life from birth to death. That's bios, my, my life here on earth. Most of us focus on that exclusively as our life. 
our priorities, our goals are all about this season of life between birth and death. That, that's the word bios. Is that the, the word that Jesus is referring to here? No. It's a good word, though. And it does matter what we do in this bios that we have given to us. The word here that Jesus uses is the Greek word suke. What it really means is your individual person. And so when Jesus talks about whoever wants to save their life, he's saying people who go about trying to find themselves on their own. I was trying to think back to when I first started hearing this expression. I think it was in the 1970s when people started saying, I just need to go and find myself. (laughs) You gotta go find yourself, figure out who you are. That's not a bad thing for anybody to do. I had to move away from my family to find myself. My dad was a very big personality. He was a pastor known everywhere in our region. I would never have become the the leader I am and the pastor I am were I not able to get out from under that influence. I had to go find myself. But here's the point he's saying here. You cannot find your true self by trying to find yourself by yourself. I made that up. You can tweet that. You cannot find your true self by trying to find yourself by yourself. What what we're talking about here is the you that you were created to be that you are not now because you were born out of relationship with God. We are all born with a propensity to go in the wrong direction. The Bible calls that a sin nature, a broken moral compass. And so if you're using that compass to go out and try to find yourself, all you're going to find is a broken version of yourself. God created you for something better. There is a true individual in each of you that God has created uniquely, that he has gifted uniquely, that he has a purpose for, and you are so much better than the person you are outside of Jesus. It is this true self that we are talking about. And what Jesus is saying is you'll never find that true self by trying to find yourself by yourself. Every time I say that, I like it more. (laughs) You won't, and that's why it says whoever wants to save their life, in the end, it'll get pulled from their grasp. They'll never find it, They'll, they'll lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it, will find it. You can only find your true self by losing yourself to Jesus. You see what he's offering here? Yeah, you first hear it, you go, oh, this is so morbid. Am I willing to die for Jesus? Well, I, I hope you are. I hope I'm willing to die for Jesus. If you were to ask me, I'd say yes. But do we really know until we're faced with that decision? I can only make that statement by faith. The question is, am I right now willing to live for Jesus? That's the question. And I can only live for Jesus if I'm willing to put aside me, my priorities, because my priorities come from a broken place. God's priorities come from a perfect place. My priorities come from 
sin, God's priorities come from grace and redemption. My priorities come from death. God's priorities bring life. This is the true self that Jesus offers you. And so this invitation is, yeah, it's serious, but it's actually filled with hope. It's not a warning. It's an invitation to follow Jesus for the same joy that was before him as he endured the cross. It's in surrendering that you actually become who God meant you to be. I love that, and all of that to help us really understand this ultimate question that he asks. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and forfeit their very soul? The whole world there is exactly what you think it is in the Greek. It's everything that exists that we can imagine physically. In other words, you could work at finding yourself in this bios, this time between life and death, and be so successful at it that you get everything. And you will still not ever be who you were meant to be. You'll lose your very self. What good is that? It's a rhetorical question, this one. It's a life completely wasted. Now look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 19, just on the screen. You don't have to turn to it. Tell them to, and let's say this together, store up treasure as a good foundation for the coming age so that you may take hold of that life that is truly life. Now, if you've been around me for any period of time, you probably know that that last phrase is one of my favorite expressions in Scripture to describe what Jesus has called us to. Just the underlined words. Say it with me. Life that is truly life. You see, most of us are just living life. We're just about this bios. We're just doing our best to get through. And God says, I've got more for you. I've got truly life if you'll come after me. And my life is bigger than just this life. My life is eternal. I give credit to Francis Chan for the illustration I'm going to attempt this morning. Found this in my workbench area while I was packing up the house. I'm gonna bring this over to Deborah. Pass it back and keep, it, keep holding it as you pass it back. All the way back. There we go. Keep going. And then you're going to have to hold it up so everybody can see it, okay? Now, Wes, in the back there, pass it over to Dan. Keep holding on, Wes. Now come towards the front. There you go. Lots of rope. Keep going. All the way across the front. I think we're going to make the turn. Awesome. Okay, so hold it up. It's a long rope. I want you to think of this part of the rope in green as your life here on earth. This is your bios. Everything that follows is what happens in the life to come, which is still life. In fact, it's life that is truly life. And I need you to ask the question, how much of how you're planning and shaping your life is just about your bios, just about this section of your life. And how much of it 
is actually investing in the life that is truly life for which we were created, that is really about your true self that God made you to be. It's the zoe, it's the whole thing. It's not that this doesn't matter, but this is just preparation and readiness for all of that. And of course, even though there's probably several hundred segments of this length here, of course that rope and our analogy has no end to it. It keeps going and going and going. I remember as a 12-year-old boy, watch night services at one church that my dad pastored that was in the dairy farm area of New Jersey. Yes, New Jersey has dairy farms. It is the Garden State. The person that planned the New Jersey Turnpike did not want anybody from New England to stop on their way through. Put it through everything that's ugly. I remember Howard Dieter would say, Preacher, I want to sing Amazing Grace. And the last verse, when, when we sing, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, I want it to be when we've been there 10 zillion years. As a 12-year-old kid, I thought that was stupid. We would all very politely sing, as I'm going to ask you to sing, when we've been there Your arms are getting tired, aren't they? (laughs) That's just a sign you're not a charismatic. That's all that is. (laughs) So as a 12-year-old, I thought that was kind of stupid. But now that I'm closer to this side of my bios, I think Howard was one of the smartest men I ever had the privilege of meeting. And I pass his wisdom on to you when we've been there 10 zillion years, if you can even begin to fathom that, we'll have no less days than when we first begun. What a waste of a life. Let's only focus on this. When Jesus says, put your ambitions aside. Let me be in charge. Let me live through you and become the self that you were meant to be for all of eternity. Hey? Let me pray together. I want to, first of all, invite those of you who have been considering who Jesus is to recognize that he is the one who offers you life abundant, truly life eternal. And his death makes it possible for you to die to your old life and live a new life in him. And today you can do that by confessing your need for forgiveness of Jesus and surrendering to him as your Lord and as your Savior. If that's where your heart is today and you want to say, today I make that choice to follow Jesus, would you raise your hand so I see it? Anybody? Thank you. Thanks. Got it. Thank you. And Christians, let me just ask, have you lost that eternal orientation Are you asserting your authority when Jesus asks you to lay it down? Are you living your dreams and priorities and asking Jesus to rubber stamp them and approve them, or are you letting him live his dreams and priorities through you? Is a deeper level of commitment called for? Are you a true follower, or are you merely a fan? Father, 
May we be able to say that we have surrendered to you. This is, these are big statements, Lord. It's not something that we accomplish on our own. Salvation from first to last is by grace through faith, but yet we, we need to make these commitments in faith. We need to be on this path. We need to be allowing you to live through us. And so, Father, we who love you say once again, we surrender to you. And in surrendering, we, we find life that is truly life. In Jesus' name, amen.